I always knew I was British. Everything rotated around being British. We spoke English. When you got to school, you have to speak English correctly. You can have accents after. But we learned from a book. Because all the churches run everything in English. We had to aim to learn one thing, English history. I knew more about England than I knew about Guyana. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. This month, October, is Black History Month and a fantastic opportunity to celebrate our black writers and their books. To mark Black History Month 2020 on the Vintage Books Podcast, we wanted to share an extract from the powerful audiobook of Homecoming by Colin Grant. This book is a rich tapestry created from over 100 first-hand interviews, archival records and memoirs by the women and men who came to Britain from the West Indies between the late 1940s and the early 1960s. We hear from nurses in Manchester, bus drivers in Bristol, teachers in Croydon and carnival queens in Leeds. There are stories of hope and regret, of triumph and challenges, brimming with humour, anger and wisdom. So, settle in to hear more from this essential and much misunderstood chapter of our history from a chapter entitled, England Was No Mama To Me. England Was No Mama To Me My siblings and I would sometimes nag my mother, Ethelyn, as she put us to bed in Luton, to describe her life in Jamaica, a place we'd never been. She would conjure up a 1940s world that was magical and mysterious. Ethlyn had lived on Kingston's Outlook Avenue, a residential area. She rolled the R and drew out the word residential, so we understood its societal importance. At the bottom of Outlook Avenue, there was the Bournemouth Beach Club, where she and her friends met to listen to jazz. In her halterneck dress, she swooned on the dance floor and sipped cocktails at candlelit tables around a swimming pool with steps down to the sea. Can you see it? said Ethelyn. No? If you want to see glamour, close your eyes and imagine it. Ethelyn talked fondly, proudly even, of her middle-class home with uniformed servants, of joining the girl guides and taking part in the ceremonial folding of the Union flag, of practising cursive handwriting from Avere Foster's new civil service copybook, of standing to attention in the Rialto cinema at the end of a screening of the latest film to sing with lusty enthusiasm, God Save the King, and of learning by rote and reciting Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock and the sentimental ending of Rudyard Kipling's Gunga Din. As much as she was steeped in English poetry, Ethelyn's language was also laced with Jamaican proverbs and saying. On the question of motherly love, for example, she would say, Cook picnic give mumma, mumma can't eat it. Cook mumma give pitney, pitney nyam. The meaning of the parable, the mother who couldn't eat her child, yet the child ate the mother voraciously, was that mothers would always love their children more than children love mothers. Ethling, like many of her friends in Jamaica, had a romantic attachment to the notion of England as a motherland. The values of England were her values. Her belief in England was an article of faith, 
In a sense, I owe my education to those reveries. Ethlyn immersed herself 4,000 miles away in a fictionalised idea of Britain found in Tom Brown's school days in particular. That quintessentially British novel, film and culture held a grip on her imagination and that of her peers. Decades later, this fueled her determination to give me the kind of polish offered by a British public school, even though she could ill afford to send me to such a place. Another favourite poem of Ethelin's was Kipling's English Flag, which included the memorable line, And what should they know of England, who only England know? Directed at the British who'd never travelled to the colonies to grasp the ambitions of empire, Kipling's question might also be asked of West Indians who'd never left their islands and whose knowledge of England, grounded in arcane ceremonies and history, was drawn almost exclusively from textbooks imported from Britain. West Indians only knew England in the abstract, in the eccentricity of Ealing comedies, in paintings of Salisbury Cathedral and in playground songs of dancing around the exotic mulberry bush. Today, the South London home of Joyce Estelle Trotman brims full of memorabilia and the legacy of empire. There are even copies of her old school textbooks, Nelson West Indian Reader Series, a standard educational tool that included extracts of Dickens and reflections on Constable's paintings. There were never examples available of any locally made art or literature. As she remembers the English country dance they learned at school, the sprightly 90-year-old Joyce gets up to demonstrate the dance she performed as a seven-year-old in British Guyana, knowing nothing of its origins. The bodies of West Indians may have been in the Caribbean, but their heads were in British clouds. George Lamming has this in mind when he asserts in The Pleasures of Exile that most West Indians of my generation were born in England. Though they'd never left the West Indian islands, they'd bought into the idea that the colonies were an extension of England. To pack your bags and book passage on a steamship to England was to journey to the centre, like Dick Whittington striking out from Lancashire to London. West Indians were part of something bigger than just England, subjects of an imperial experiment. These 19 Caribbean islands and Guyana on the mainland of South America had been colonised by the British over the course of three centuries. They would continue to be governed by the British until they became independent from the 1960s onwards. On Empire Day, 24th of May each year, millions of children from all corners of the globe were encouraged to stretch out hands, forming a ring around Earth to celebrate their membership of an extraordinary extended family, including those British territories in the West Indies. But where were these so-called Caribbean people from? They were not Caribs. In the 1960s, the Rastafarians would spell out the anomaly in song. Jamaica is an island, but not I-land. The British subjects in the West Indies were a forced admixture of African and European. Not Afro-Caribbeans then, but more accurately, Afro-Saxons. Whenever I asked Ethelin about our heritage and family line, 
She would recite almost as a listener the names of our ancestors. Ethelin's mum was Pauline. Before her was Granny Reed, who was preceded by Marmee. Finally, there was Gong, who was a slave. That was it. Ethelin could go back no further. And all she knew of Gong was her name. Considering Britain's role in the toxic Atlantic slave trade, I was surprised by how little antipathy there was towards Britain from my West Indian interviewees. But for many, like Ethelin and Joyce Trotman, growing up in the region, slavery and its legacy, its psychological impact, reparations, or indentureship of mainly Indian labourers hired to work on plantations after the newly freed slaves refused, had never been a topic of conversation other than when celebrating William Wilberforce's role in abolition. While British history was taught and absorbed in the colonies, there was little recognition of African ancestry. Africa was an embarrassment and a pitiful, dark continent, only thought about when the collection plate came round in church services. Africa was not the motherland. England owned that title. Joyce Estelle Trotman I was born in Stanleytown Village, West Bank, Demerara, British Guyana. It's a little village on the Demerara River. The Dutch had two polders, sections of drained land, and two canals dug by slave labour, and Stanleytown would be the first village. My grandparents were farmers, planting cassava and edos and so on. My grandfather was a chief pan boiler, sugar. Slavery is sugar. The pan boilers were the workers in the sugar factory. When you got all the juice out from the cane, it was boiled and boiled until it became like molasses. Then it was boiled again in a big copper pan until it crystallised. They said that the Guyanese pan boilers were the best in the West Indies. By the time, in 1936, I wasn't even nine yet. By that time, I could do the times table from two to seventeen. It's true. Teacher was like a circus master with a cane, and I'm in the middle there, and I'm doing 17 times table by rote. I didn't even know what it was for. The cane was like a whip, and it had some joints in it, and they were imported from England. And then we had to do English country dancing. If all the world were paper and all the seas were ink, if all the trees were bread and cheese, what would you have to drink? Upper double, backer double, set and turn. <laughs> English country dancing to the tune of If All the World Were Paper. One year, I was looking at Poldark on TV and they were doing the country dancing and I thought, Oh, oh, that's Black Nag, an English country dance, Aka the Galloping Nag. They're doing there. For the scholarship, books were imported and they were all English and they would have dictation passages because you have to learn the hard words. In one year, one of the passages was all the flowers of England, and among them was delphinium and antirhinum, and you had to learn to spell them. And I spelled antirhinum with one R, and I got licks. So every time I look at the one in my garden, I say, you caused me a headache. Now in those days, secondary education was not free. If you were a girl and you were illegitimate like me, you couldn't go to the bishop's high school. You had to go to the convent, 
because Bishop's High School was very English. You had to be rescued by St. Joseph's Convent. Ursula Convent wouldn't take you because you were black. Who went there were white and Portuguese. So this friend of my mother's, he opened this school called Enterprise High School in somebody's big two-story house. And 12 of us turned up that first morning, Friday 1st of September 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland. I heard the war bulletin. That was the first time I heard war bulletin. Later, the government decided they had extra money, so they offered four free places, and I went to the bishop's high school. The deputy was Mr. Ogle. One day, one of the girls in the presence of Betty, the deputy's daughter, called Olive Dennison, a nigger and Betty Ogle, said to her, You apologize to Olive now, but do you know what it was? Betty Ogle's mother was white Jamaican, so she was different, so Betty had a different upbringing from the girl and stood there and made her apologize to Olive Dennison. Everything was English. Look at the books. Ivanhoe, Henry V, Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth, Matthew Arnold. Talking about Keats, in the primary school, when you read on the page, there was a poem called The Naughty Boy. There was a naughty boy, and a naughty boy was he. He ran away to Scotland, the people there to see. But if you see the page, it had John Keats at the bottom. Well, we were rapping without knowing that we were rapping. So he stood in his shoes and he wondered, he wondered, he stood in his shoes and he wondered, John Keats. Nobody told us that this Keats at the bottom wasn't part of the poem. Trevor Roan In Jamaica, we grew up on the iambic pentameter and Chaucer and Shakespeare. And all our lives going to the cinema, there'd be ealing comedies or no-coward dramas, films of Shakespeare, Laurence Olivier, big stars on the screen, so little of our own. And I remember going to my school library in the 1950s, and out of the blue jumped this book at me, The Hills Were Joyful Together, by Roger Mays. It was the first time I'd come across any locally written literature. Poems were about snow and daffodils, which we really couldn't relate to at all. There was nothing that reflected our own life experiences. Colin Carter In Barbados, we have got Hastings, we have got Worthing, we have got Yorkshire, we've got Lancaster, we've got Tetley, you name it. We have a Nelson statue in Barbados that is older than the one in London, and it also stands in Trafalgar Square. We had a warped knowledge of the English people. Barbados was swamped with the middle-class Englishman who conveyed a certain image, a certain air about England. He'd done it so well, it was natural for Barbadians to visualize England through the eyes of those kinds of people. And I'm talking about our civil service, the commissioner of police, the adjutant, the regimental sergeant major instructor, the governor. All these were people who were dispatched from England to run the administration. George Manga I was born in British Guyana, now called Guyana, in 1937. 42 Broad Street, Charleston, Georgetown, British Guyana. It was a multiracial area. And in those days, people of all walks of life lived next to each other. And we all lived harmoniously together. All races of people. We were so cosmopolitan. 
I'm of Indian extract and my neighbors were Negro extract, Chinese, and Portuguese. If you came to my house and expect to have curry and rice, you'd be wrong. My grandparents came from India, three of them, two from Bihar and one from Kashmir. They came as indented labor at the end of slavery. And my mother's father was from Ireland. My father was a medical practitioner. My mother was a housewife. I always knew I was British. Everything rotated around being British. We spoke English. When you got to school, you have to speak English correctly. You can have accents after. But we learned from a book. Because all the churches run everything in English. We had to aim to learn one thing, English history. I knew more about England than I knew about Guyana. My father studied in England and he adapted English customs as well, like egg and bacon for breakfast and cornflakes and milk and roast lunches. My father followed all the British customs. Then the church, of course, brings along that line as well. All the priests were from England. The governor of our country was from England. The Home Secretary was from England. We had a parliament which was local people, but you always had the English influence. Bookers came from England, Bookers Brothers, and most of the big stores and so on. The London-based Booker Company was the colony's largest landlord, manufacturer, retailer, and employer. We had Sandback Parker, we had Fogarty's, which was Irish. Everything came from England, our clothing, case shoes, Booker Brothers' managers were from England, Scotland, and various places, all white people. They all employed people of fair color in these stores. In my time, I only saw about two or three non-white people working there. They had to be Catholic as well. The banks as well. We had Barclays Bank, the Royal Bank of Canada. Barclays Bank, I hardly ever saw a black person working there until years and years after. Royal Bank of Canada as well. There were one or two non-whites in there. In later years, they took people from other nationalities. I thought nothing of that. My aspiration was to come to England and study like my father. My father died from a brain hemorrhage when I was only eight years old. He died very suddenly while we were having dinner one evening. I was sat next to him. His face went into his bowl of soup and I took his glasses off and moved the plate. I didn't realize what was happening. And the next thing I knew, all these doctors came to the house and said my father was dead. We had so many different things under the English rule that you never had under the local rule after. I think it was positive in the sense, because we were educated in English. We had a culture. We played cricket, football, rugby. We had a lot of things which the English brought to us. Dancing the waltz, the classical music, which I love. In Guyana, everybody had a club that they go to for their entertainment. Like the white people had their own club, the GCC, the George Cricket Club. The Indians had the British Guyana East India Club. They had dances. They played cricket and at the weekends they played bridge. All the English things they did and tennis. The Negro people had the DCC. Demerara Cricket Club. Then the Chinese Association had theirs. The Portuguese had theirs. Everybody had a club to go to, but everything was English. We would go to all the clubs except the white clubs. You had to be invited. We had a place called the Carib, which all the elite went to. 
the Saturday night dances, the creme de la creme, lawyers and doctors. I was never invited to the white club. You had to be invited to these things. My father, a doctor, was invited to things like that. He treated people who were white. We had a radio, and the end of the programs at night, they played the national anthem of England. At the cinemas, at the beginning of every film, there was a national anthem of England. Everybody stood up. When I came to England in 1959 in Ipswich, my sister-in-law took me to the movies, and they played the national anthem and I was the only person who stood up. She grabbed me, said, sit down, what are you doing? I didn't know any different. Leary Constantine, BBC Third Program, 1943. My grandparents were slaves. It's queer now to think back to my childhood, to see my grandfather sitting in the hot sunshine on the top step of his little bungalow, leaning his back against the door, and to realize when he was a youth, he was a slave. And my grandmother, too. I remember my first cricket bat when I was four or five. It wasn't a cricket bat in the sense that English boys know them. It was made from a branch taken from a coconut tree, and the ball we played with was a young orange or grapefruit dried in the sun until the rind came off and rolled around until it became flexible, and we could get 40 or 50 runs off it before we demanded a new ball. All the boys in our family played cricket. My father first came to England with the West Indies team in 1900, and when he was first over, he made friends with two Irish men called Leary and Vivian. They gave him such a good time in Ireland that he said he would call his son after one of them. Vivian Durham The ambition of every black Jamaican in those days was to be a white man. In those days, our conception was based upon the story of the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. There was a perversion of the fundamental principle of theology. You'd be shocked to know that up until we got universal adult suffrage in 1944, a black man could not be inspector of police. He couldn't go further than Sergeant Major. It would have been incredible to think of a black man being a prelate of the local parish. It would have been incredible to have a black man like me being a justice of the peace. And so those were the kinds of rapacious conditions we lived under. Wilfred Lawson. Montego Bay, Jamaica, where we were from, was a tourist place. So I used to mingle with people from foreign. I met some well-known film stars like Gary Cooper. I remember getting a dollar from him. We used to go and entertain them at the Casablanca Hotel, spitting fire out of Wimouth with kerosene, things like that. It was at the Casablanca that Gary Cooper chucked a dollar to me. I had plenty little job as a youth. I was also a cabin boy on Lyndon Johnson's little 37-foot yacht. When he and his wife, Lady Bird, came out, I would serve them. It was more or less like a work-friend thing. It wasn't really a master and servant situation. I used to sit and talk with Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird. I used to sing at the boys' club. The club was run by Mas Charlie and was funded by the founder of the Daily Express, Lord Beaverbrook. I was kissed by Lady Jean Beaverbrook. 
When I say kissed, I mean she'd come and kiss me on my lips at the boys' club. We were singing for her and her husband. I also got building work in and around Montego Bay. I had a friend who knew this millionaire, Captain Saunders. His house was like a fortress. He had a pilot house that sent the seawater straight up to the swimming pool. A chap called Basil controlled the millionaire, and Basil was a friend of mine. I used to do all the work he was commissioned for. Basil was a showman, right? When you see him, you see light. When you see him, the whole place light up. He used to have a white horse and used to dress in a white suit when he'd be riding the horse on the main road. Whatever Basil said to the captain, he'd do. Somebody said he was a bit gay or something. Anyway, Basil was able to control him. You can get on with white people in Jamaica, but you have to know to deal with them. I was quite privileged. I was always mingling with white people, English people. Lynette May Sims I was born in St. Catherine, Jamaica, 5th of January, 1930. I love St. Catherine. My father's land was his father's land, Orange Hill. All ten of us born there. We farmed coconut, breadfruit, thing like cassava, callaloo, sugarcane. My father used to have a donkey and it had two hampers and my mother would sit in the middle on the back of the donkey and the two hampers at the sides have the coffee or the chocolate or the breadfruit, whatever she going to sell. That's how she get to Linstead Market. I went to elementary school, no secondary. Empire Day was a day you dress up. You don't wear shoes to school, but on Empire Day, we wear shoes. We were celebrating the king. I had friends from the village. My favorite friend was white because her father wasn't Jamaican. He was Mass Percy. She was called Myrtle. She don't friend no other girl, just me. People look at me and wonder what was so special about me to have a white friend. She was at school with me, but she could go to high school, but I couldn't afford to go there. I was 12 when I leave school, because we had a school inspection and you change classes. I skipped from B to second. I was brighter than my friend, Kathleen, at the same school. Because I skipped the class, I leave her behind. When playtime come, we go for dinner and I used to tease her. Catch you and pass you. She was crying and I didn't know she was going to tell her mom about my singing. The mom said something to the daughter and when I got to school, there was a bump or a boil that came up on one of my feet. And the teacher start to sniff and say, what smells? I tell my mom, mom, the teacher say there's a funny smell and a lump come up on my foot and it getting bigger. My mom looked, she see the boy and she say, it must be this Miss Birdie smell. You know what? Stay home from school today. Don't go back today. And she look after it. When they call for me to go back to school, she say, you have to leave her here and I'll have to look after her foot. And from that day, I never went back to that school. It was some kind of obia, yes? And my father brought a man called Mr. Mackenzie to our house. He's far away from my district, and when he came, he rode on a horse, a big, lovely white horse, and he rode the horse through the gate and around the house three times, and as he did, he was talking to himself, saying, I am here now, and since I am here, you have to go now. Then he said, Bye-bye, I'll see you again, and my foot improved. He was spiritual man, and we called him Healer. I never bother with Kathleen again.
From there, I work on helping plant my father's land. I remember when the queen father died. I was in the bush picking gunga peas and heard the church bells far and wide tolling, and the people were bawling and wailing because the king died. In my mind, I had pictures of the queen. Even the dogs were barking because the king died. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. If you're interested, you can find out more about Homecoming by Colin Grant in the episode description. What are you reading for Black History Month? We'd love to know. You can tag us at at Vintage Books on Twitter and Instagram. Keep reading boldly and thinking differently. And until next time.